Hello, everyone. I'm Paul Botts, the CEO and founder of Good Leadership Enterprises. And I'm Chelsea Larson, a young leader from Minneapolis. Welcome to the Goodness Pays Leadership Podcast. We are recording this in the Aspiration Suite of our offices in Minneapolis, Minnesota, where we coach leaders and their teams how to grow their businesses with goodness. In short, our team of coaches coaches your team through the transitions to the next level of performance. Chelsea, your new voice on the Goodness Pays Leadership Podcast, will you tell everyone how we met? Sure. It's kind of a fun story. Mm-hmm. So I was invited to the Young Leadership Breakfast last year, so exactly a year ago. Um, I was invited by one of my mentors, and um, to be honest, I wasn't really excited to come. Uh, sometimes those breakfasts can be awkward, boring, uh, fill in the blank, but I fell in love with the Good Leadership Breakfast and what it stood for, and I thought you were really cool. So um, I had it in my head that I was going to ask you to do coffee until uh, you told the story about how the Good Leadership Breakfast got started Mm -hmm. um, to avoid doing coffee with 50 people. (laughs) Um, So I thought, okay, well, I'll have to get creative. And then you mentioned you loved golf. Yep. Um, So I asked you to play golf with me, and you did. Yeah, so uh, this is on record, and it's being broadcast all over the universe, that someone who's the same age as my children thinks I'm cool (laughs) and figured out a way to connect with me on the golf course. Don't get a big head. (laughs) Well, let me tell uh, our listening audience a little bit about the Good Leadership Breakfast Series. Yes, it's true. I started this way back in 2010. This morning was our 77th episode of the Good Leadership Breakfast. This was the Masters Alliance Young Leaders Breakfast that's sponsored by TCF Bank. I know that's a mouthful, but what it represents is all the different people and sponsors that have helped us through nine and a half years present 77 presentations, and today's was really, really special. Yeah, I agree. I was really impressed by Alvin, and the first thing I noticed was his presence and his smile. Um, He immediately came off as he was really, really happy, and his smile maintained the whole time. And I was really, it made me feel um, warm and good inside. That's really great to hear because I take great care in curating these leaders to connect with young leaders. You're a young leader. And uh, I can tell after doing this now 77 times that Alvin was intensely personal in his message. It's just impossible to miss that. So for you first-time listeners, the strategy for this episode is what we call Monday Morning Quarterback. In other words, we will play some of the highlights of Alvin Abraham's talk this morning and share our observations and even criticisms based on my experience as a young leader in the audience today and Paul's experience as an executive coach. Yeah, so let's begin right away with his opening comments. I can say that one of the things that Alvin had in common with many, many of the other speakers, in sometimes unbeknownst to me, is a background whose parents did not grow up in the United States of America. So let's jump right away to the opening of his speech. I, as Paul mentioned, am the dean of the Doherty Family College at the University of St. Thomas. The Doherty Family College is a new two-year college focused on providing a pathway for young people who may not be able to access college uh, right out of high school because cost might be a barrier uh, or because they might lack the supports necessary to be successful once they get there. We bring students in and for two years, we support them in developing their academic chops teach them the ropes of being a college student at a cost that's extremely affordable, and when they graduate, support them in transitioning to four-year programs and staying with them all the way through college graduation. We just this week, in fact, welcomed our third class of students, so we are really new, uh, and we're excited about what the future holds for each of them. So as Paul mentioned, I am the proud product of immigrant parents who moved to America in the early 70s in search of a better life for themselves and for their family. 
I was born in New York City and moved to Houston, Texas uh, when I was young. I am in the middle of three kids, and so I definitely am a middle child. If you're a middle child, you know what I mean. Uh, if you're the oldest, you have no care in the world about what that means. Uh, and if you're the youngest, you don't know that anyone else exists in your family. Um, um, but I also grew up in a really, really large extended family. So my mom was one of the first of her seven siblings to move to America. And by the time I was eight, she brought over and sponsored four of her siblings to also move to America. We uh, all lived within a one mile radius of one another, which is a really, really wonderful way to grow up with cousins and family around. Although those times when you got in trouble at school, it was not so fun because you got an earful from mom and then you got an earful from aunt and then a few days later you got an earful from your uncle about what you need to do better and how can you disappoint us like that. Uh, on the flip side, uh, it was also really exciting. So at Christmas, we had 60 to 70 people jammed in a house, five or six turkeys and tons and tons and tons of pie. So it was really exciting to, to grow up uh, in such a broad community of support. It really does take a village, as you know, uh, to, to raise a family. Uh, we grew up in a community, uh, a suburb of Houston called Sugarland. Uh, and yes, it is sort of as sticky and sweet as you imagine a town called Sugarland is. Uh, and my parents, and the important part about that is that my parents worked really hard to afford a house in that community because they knew that the schools that we would have access to were some of the best public schools in the state. And so they made sure that we were there and that all of their siblings were there and that all of us had access to some of these schools. I uh, attended college at Texas A&M University, and I was a political science major, and I knew I wanted to be a lawyer, I wanted to work in a corporate setting, and I wanted to make tons of money. Uh, it didn't work out, um, uh, but, but life ended up uh, being, I think anyway, uh, a lot better. I got to senior year of college, and I knew that I wanted to go to law school still at that time, but I also wanted to gain some experience and learn some more about the world around me. I applied to different programs, and I applied to one, an AmeriCorps program called Teach for America. And I ended up, uh, out of all the 30 at the time locations that you could be placed in across the country, I ended up getting placed in Houston, Texas. Uh, and the elementary school that I was placed at was about 20 miles from the elementary school that I attended. However, uh, the schools were sort of like just worlds apart, right? The school I attended uh, served mostly white students and mostly students who were middle class or upper middle class. The school that I taught at served mostly students of color and almost every single child was on free and reduced lunch. The school I attended uh, had student outcomes that were some of the best in the state. The school I was placed at had some of the worst student outcomes in the state. Night and day difference. It was here uh, in my two years at this school that I realized that the zip code you are born into has an enormous impact on your life outcomes. And it also really struck me that that's not fair. So Chelsea, you told us that he immediately connected with you. So what are you thinking now after listening to the opening of his talk? Yeah, well, my first thought was immediately, um, I am definitely the youngest child. <laughs> um, definitely the favorite of the uh -huh, family. Uh -huh, uh, no, uh -huh. just kidding. No, I thought that was great. But my second thought was when he was talking about college, and um, I think everyone can kind of resonate with that. You want to go to college, you think you're going to get this great job and make tons of money, and it usually doesn't happen that way. Or at least not um, right away. Not yeah. right away. Yeah. yeah. Uh -huh. and, and that is definitely the case for me. I, I majored in sports management. I thought I would own a sports team um, and make all this money, and I don't work in sports anymore. I don't use my degree. And so it's just interesting to see where my career has gone and what you think it's going to be when you're in college. You have all of these ideas and it's just usually doesn't 
pan out that way. Um, and then the third thing, um, I, I started feeling a little bit guilty myself because I was very blessed to grow up the way I did, go to the schools I did. I went to a Catholic school for a little bit. Um, really never questioned um, if I was going to college. It was always a given for me. And listening to this, it, it made me realize um, that's not given for a lot of people. And I, f- I feel very lucky, but I also felt a little guilty that um, the opportunities I've been given, um, it, it's not really my my fault or, or my blessing. It was just born into it. And so when you mentioned the zip code um, and what you're born into, I'd never thought of it. Yeah, that there's way. the first tension point. So every good novel, every good speech, every good article has a tension point. And I think this idea that your zip code kind of predetermines whether or not you've got a good chance. So that's a really good thought for us to jump forward on. So let's keep listening. And so I fell in love with teaching, uh, luckily, uh, and my career trajectory changed. I stayed in the classroom. I taught first, third, and fifth grades. I then knew that I wanted to continue to expand my impact as an educator. Went back to school at night while I was teaching, got my license to be a principal, uh, and was a principal at a couple different schools uh, in Houston, all really focused on this idea of leveling the playing field and providing opportunity for students that needed it. In 2012, I was recruited to move to Minnesota from Houston. Uh, It was August when I visited, uh, which is like 110 degrees in Houston and miserably humid. So I was really excited to be here in August. Um, And I thought I'd be here for two years. I came to work at a national network of charter schools called the KIPP, which is an acronym for the Knowledge is Power program. And I worked at a middle school in North Minneapolis. I thought I'd be here for two years, but I fell head over heels in love with the community. The school was phenomenal, the people I worked with were phenomenal, and we worked really, really hard to continue to level the playing field for students in this community. In 2017, I joined the team at the Doherty Family College, and it's been a really incredible experience to continue this good work, but in higher ed. I also, one of the other reasons why I've stayed as long as I have, is that uh, the first couple of years of living here, I met my husband. Okay, so there's another tension point. We're going to find out later that that comment, I met my husband, is really, really, really significant in his story. Let's keep listening. Who is a Minnesotan? And that's what generally happens, right? People come here from out of state, and then you fall in love with a Minnesotan, and then you are stuck forever. <laughs> Never are you able to leave. If you do leave, you are forced to come back some way, shape, or form. But I am uh, what they call extremely Minnesotan because my husband is from International Falls, Minnesota. So meteorologists across the country call that place the icebox of the nation. It also produces a lot of hockey players. Literally all my relatives on Nick's side turn their backyards into uh, skating rinks in the winter. Uh, It's crazy, but cool, but really crazy. Um, And then, cool fun fact, my husband is the grandson of Bronco Nagurski. So the young kids in this room have no idea who, this is, who that is, so you should look him up later. Uh, but he's a football hall of famer, really famous Minnesotan. Uh, so claim to fame, I'm a Minnesotan in an extreme one. Um, uh, last summer, my husband and I adopted a little girl, Willa, who just turned 13 months old. And she just started walking a few weeks ago, and now is running everywhere, which is scary and really exciting all at the same time. My husband is also an educator. Uh, He spent 16 years as an elementary school teacher and is currently staying home taking care of Willa, so classroom of one, uh, but is looking forward to going back back to the classroom in a few years. So when Paul asked me to talk about how goodness pays, I really reflected on sort of what that means to me. And one thing that uh, really connects to it for me and for my family is our family motto. 
And you're probably thinking, like, why do you have a family motto? Well, when you go through the adoption process, which is quite a lengthy process, uh, you're required to reflect on lots of things. And one of the things you're required to reflect on is the culture that you want to build in your family. We approach that very seriously, uh, and kind of like teachers. Each year, you establish a culture in your classroom, you come up with rules, you come up with values for what you are establishing and want to sort of lead your thoughts in the way you work in the classroom. We thought we should do the exact same thing in our family. And so we worked hard uh, to come up with a motto that we thought could apply to essentially any situation and help us, um, uh, help us you know, evolve and grow as a family. Work hard, be nice, be yourself. Okay, so Chelsea, what do you think of the family motto? Yeah, I loved when he talked about that because I'm sort of in a job transition right now. I've been thinking a lot about my core values. Um, growing up, we didn't have a family model that I'm aware of, um, but for the most part, my, my parents taught me the same things his family motto is, is work hard, be nice, be yourself, um, but it wasn't necessarily talked about, so I like um, that his family is, has an open conversation about that, and I, I really loved it. So I've been spending my last five years trying to help people really understand and not snicker at goodness pays, and when I heard work hard, be nice, be yourself, I was like, oh no, here we go. Here's another do-gooder. Uh, where the hell is he going to go with this one? But he really proved me wrong. I, he had substance and really in compelling information underneath each one of those three ideas. So let's just let him explain. Work hard. Um, as I mentioned, um, my very first year in the classroom uh, at this school, out of my entire career, I've been doing this now for about 18 years, was the most difficult year of my entire career. I didn't know what I was doing. <laughs> in a classroom of 27 first grade students, uh, and they're little and all over you, um, and I, I knew that I needed to do a really wonderful job. And so I was trying to be really good at every single thing, and I was not good at any of them. A couple months in, my, I, I was having dinner with my family, and I was explaining how difficult things were, and I mentioned to them, mentioned to them, that I was thinking about quitting. The parents were really good. You know, they were just kind of listened and asked questions. At the end, we were all kind of cleaning up in the kitchen, and my dad stops me and he says, you can't quit. I taught you better than that, and your kids deserve better than that. You're smart, figure it out. And I needed to hear that. It was sort of the swift kick in the pants that I needed to sort of refocus and remember why I was there and what I was trying to do. And so I made myself think about the one thing that I could do that year to ensure that my students were successful. And I knew that, especially in first grade, if my students left reading on grade level, that that would be monumental and help set them up for success in second grade. So I became maniacal about it. I looked at data on my campus to see which teachers did the best in reading, and I got to know them really well. I went into their classroom, observed them. They came into mine, gave me feedback, helped me with my lessons. I became an expert at phonics instruction and guided reading. I built a classroom library of books that my students were really excited about, from begging uh, friends to buy them for me, uh, and walking around and going to different bookstores, asking them for donations. I partnered with the fifth grade teacher down the hall, created a buddy reading system where fifth graders came into the classroom each week and read with my students. It's really cool to see a fifth grader reading Harry Potter with the first grader. Right? And so by the end of the year, not only did every one of my students leave first grade reading on grade level, but a third of them grew two or more years in reading that year. 
I worked really hard, and I learned then that goodness pays when you work hard. Okay, there was the credibility statement I was looking for. So work hard is one of those almost cliches. There are people that get ahead financially. They don't actually work that hard. But I was looking for a connection from you know work hard and, and excellence to outcomes related to goodness, and he definitely demonstrated that. What were you thinking when you heard that? Yeah. Well, I loved that he admitted that in his first year teaching, he didn't know what he was doing and he was trying to be good at everything and was good at nothing. I love that he said that because in reality, I think no one knows what they're doing. Um, A few people do, but I think for the most part, we're all kind of pretending that we know what we're doing, but no one does. And so the fact that he just dove right into it and developed that reading curriculum is really amazing. Okay. So now let's listen to what he says about be nice. This one sounds simple, um, but it applies to even difficult situations. So I mentioned that we grew our family through adoption, and our adoption is an open one, which means we have a relationship with the birth mother, and we've built a strong relationship with her. We think it's an important part of Willa's journey. When she's old enough to connect and meet with her, we want that to happen. It's part of her life, and it's part of who she is. when Willa was four, oh, Willa also has three siblings, two of which live with three biological siblings, two of which who live uh, with the birth mom. We get a call when Willa was about four months old. Hey guys, I'm struggling. I just got kicked out of my place. Uh, I have nowhere to go. I don't know what to do with the girls. I need your help. Can you take them for a couple of months while I get back on my feet? We'd, I'd love your help. We didn't know what to do. Um, really complex situation, as you can imagine. Um, we loved our birth mother, but we also knew that Willa was in a different path in a different life, right? Um, but when we came back to our core values and our family motto, we knew we couldn't say no. We, of course, made the pros and cons list, talked to our adoption social worker, you know, conferred with our family and friends, and ultimately made the decision to have them stay with us for a couple of months. So I flew to South Carolina where they lived, brought, their, uh, brought Sky and London, who are five and three, uh, to join our family for two months. And it was challenging, but super exciting. We bonded. Uh, Willa loved being around her sisters, as you can imagine. We were able to also sort of see a glimpse of our future with Willa and the two girls. They were phenomenal, and we did a wonderful job in sort of connecting and building relationships with them. Don't get me wrong, it was tough. It was not easy going from one kid to three overnight, literally. Um, But we made it work, and we figured it out, because we knew that that's what we had to do. We also thought a lot about, fast forward 20 years from now, and if Willa was involved in making this decision, what would she want? We knew that she would want us to say yes, so we decided to do it. So I believe that goodness pays when you work hard at being nice as well. I loved this story and it had me on the edge of my seat because I was thinking, what is, what are they going to do? You know, this is an extremely tough decision. Um, There's a lot of factors involved, including, you know, you bond with these kids and then they have to go back to their mom. Um, And I think, I thought it was amazing that Alvin and his husband just decided it was the right thing to do. And I also love that he mentioned they thought of their daughter and what would she want to do or what would she think? And I think it was awesome that uh, they kind of took themselves out of out of their own mindset and thought about somebody else. Yes, goodness is an others-focused endeavor. And that, I think, is a perfect story about that. I also think that what he said about be yourself is positively unforgettable. So we need to jump to that right now. Be yourself. I knew that I was gay in fifth grade. And it wasn't easy for me. 
Um, I remember uh, boys talking about girls and girls talking about boys and me not clicking with any of those things. I didn't know what that meant at the time. Um, and I just kept it in. Didn't talk to anyone about it because I didn't even know what the language was to even do that. Also, as I mentioned, my parents uh, grew up in a different world, literally in a different country, uh, where even today it's still taboo to be gay. I also grew up in a really strict Christian household uh, where I heard at church that it's not okay to be gay. And so when I was 19 years old, I finally came up to my very first person, uh, a really dear friend of mine, but I was terrified to tell my parents because I revered them and I respect them so much and I didn't want my relationship with them to change. Over the years, I slowly told my siblings, other friends, other people around me, and fast forward to 2013, I was 33 years old and I still had yet to tell my parents. Um, I was at this time working at my middle school and I was inspired by one of my seventh graders to actually take action here. In seventh grade, Jason stood up at a community meeting of all the seventh graders, which is, seventh grade's the craziest grade of all the grades. If you have a seventh grader, you know what I mean. Um, he stood up and he said, I'm gay. I don't care what anyone thinks about it, but I wanted you to know. And he sat back down. Of course, there were a couple little chuckles and whatnot, but the students just kind of kept going. Someone else got up and shared the next thing that was going on in their life. Here I was, 33, terrified to tell my parents that I was gay, and I was grown and living away and married and just you know, had my own life. Uh, not married yet, sorry. Uh, it's part of the story, too. Uh, wanting to be married, but holding off. Um, yet this 13-year-old kid had the courage to stand up in front of 60 of his seventh grade classmates and announce this to the group. And I knew that took a lot of courage from him, but it seemed like it was such a simple task. Two weeks later, I told my parents, it didn't go well. We went from talking three to four times a week and seeing each other probably six to 10 times a year. We were a really close family to not seeing them or talking to them for almost two years. Um, gosh, and I still get sort of uh, bothered by that. Um, but time heals all wounds, and we worked through it. I stuck to my convention, convictions of being who I am. Um, 2017 Christmas was the very first time that I was invited with, at the time, Nick, um, to come home for Christmas. Um, and since then, it's been We've been treated like my brother and his wife or my sister and her husband. My mom came and spent two weeks, with us, two weeks with us after Will was born to help out. And for the first time, my dad also came this summer and they stayed with us for two whole weeks. So I knew, I mean, I just kept thinking as I reflect on it now, what if I would have done that 10 years earlier? Right? So I knew that I wanted to instill in our family a sense of being who you are. It is important to live authentically as yourself, no matter the consequence, if it's something that, that is that important to you. So to close, I really do believe firmly that if you are, um, if you work really, really hard, if you authentically live as yourself, and you are kind to others and treat them the, the way they want to be treated, that it'll pay off. Because I really do believe that goodness pays. Thank you. Okay, Chelsea. What did you think when he finished? I thought it was amazing. Um, it first broke my heart to hear how long that he had to hide who he was, um, which is just heartbreaking. Um, but when he was telling the story about the seventh grader, I was so inspired by that seventh grader um, who just didn't care what other people thought and was just himself. And so I left feeling really inspired. We chose Alvin 
not because he was a corporate executive who was a person that was successful financially in fame. We chose him because we felt like he is a very successful person in his career. He's living through a transition in our society, and he's a, a role model for what it means to accept all the things that come at you in life. There's no straight line between who you were in college and who you are, even when you're Alvin's age. And I just love the fact that he was so artful in telling about all the twists and turns in his life. So part of the Good Leadership Breakfast also includes, after the speech, I interview each one of the speakers and I probe a little deeper on some of the things that happened. Obviously, this was a deep, intense, personal witness that Alvin gave today. So let's pick up with the second question that I asked him in the interview. Out of all the speakers that we've had come and do this over the last nine and a half years, I don't think anybody's been as personal as you've been. Hmm. So tell us what you know about family now today. Wow. <clears throat> I thought I knew a lot about it, right? Because I, as I mentioned in my story, um, I grew up with tons of family around constantly. And I also thought that I um, had an example that, that was something that I wanted to emulate as a parent myself. I think the rubber met the road for me uh, when I did come out to my family. Um, and they didn't react positively. And I think many people go through this. Uh, when you transition from being a child to almost appear to your parents, and that's what happened in that moment for me, right? Um, and I think it's taken me some time and a lot of conversation with my parents, um, and I still respect them greatly. Um, and we've had some tough conversations about it too, but you know, it was new to them. They didn't know what to do. They didn't know how to react. Um, in, in, in the Indian culture, uh, you don't talk about your feelings and, and, <laughs> and share things. It's just not part of the, the culture, right? Um, so as opposed to just sort of opening up and jumping in and talking about it, my parents reverted, right? So I've learned a lot about what unconditional love means, how I want to approach that with Willa, uh, how I want to continue to foster that with my parents now, how I want to build, continue to build off of that negative moment uh, and show each other that we love each other for my family, but also for all the other grandkids in the family, right? It's important that we're continuing to show that example. So family means a lot more than just the people that you grow up with. I also have sort of my, my, my other family of friends mm -hmm. and community that I've connected to, especially during that time. And I built an even more solid relationship with my siblings during that time. They had my back uh, and supported me through that um, and pushed on my parents uh, as well during that time to sort of get them to jump over the hump. Okay, Chelsea, what did you think of that? Yeah, I thought that was great because I'm not a parent yet, um, but I have parents. And my parents are great, awesome people. Um, but it's a weird thing when you grow up and you become an adult and then you look back on some of the things that they did and you're kind of like, oh, well... Maybe they weren't perfect. Um, and it kind of, it's just a teaching moment for when I'm a parent so that I'll do this differently or I'll do this the way they did it because they were great at that. So you're a parent. How did you feel? Yeah, I'm old enough to be your father <laughs> and I have uh, three adult children and the idea, and two of them are married. And this idea that they see themselves as peers to me is fascinating. And I think there are conversations we can have about character and about work and about how we think about politics in the future that we can have now as peers that we couldn't have before. I'm also really grateful that I, I, I don't think I did anything as a parent to cause my kids such hesitation and doubt 
like Alvin had with his parents, uh, I think maybe I need to go ask him. So I do have one last question that I always ask. So we're going to cut right to the final question. Well, thank you. We have one last question that we ask all the time, and that is that how do you know for sure? Mm. Can you give us an example, a proof point that goodness pays? Yeah. So when we were going through the adoption process, um, you know, you're sort of at the will of life, right, when you're going through the process. You're put on a list, and you wait to be chosen. Um, we... Got mat- we got put on the list in December of 2017. Uh, and in about three weeks, we got a call saying that we were matched with a mom in Florida. Wow. And we were really excited. The baby was due in March. We had built a, a relationship with the mom. We got a call at 3 a.m. on March 18th. Hey, I'm going to the hospital. I'm in labor. We immediately booked flights, flew to Florida. Um, we get there. Mom has her baby and changes her mind. We knew that this was a possibility. And we also had also committed ourselves to understanding that that is absolutely her right. And we're gonna support the mom in whatever decision that she makes because it is her life and her child, right? Obviously that was tough. Um, And then it happened again a few months later. Uh, And then Willa came into our life. And so, sorry. when I think about goodness pays, I think about our birth mom, Rebecca. The sacrifice that she made was enormous. And that joy and love that it brought to our family is incredible. Um, so that is such a poignant and incredible example to me of how goodness pays and how someone's sacrifice mm-hmm. uh, can mean so many wonderful things for other people. Okay, so not every speaker is as intensely personal as Alvin Abraham. But what goes through my mind is that goodness and leading with goodness is not clean and simple. It's messy because it's intensely personal. It's about how you show up when those things are happening in your life. It's about how you treat people when those things are happening in your life. And it's about how you create results in good times and bad. And I just could not, I I could have entertained Alvin as a part of my circle for three hours today. It was, a, it was a powerful experience to share the stage with him. What are you thinking, Chelsea? Yeah, I thought that was a powerful moment. Most of the speakers will talk about how goodness pays in the, in the workplace, um, but this had me <laughs> feeling emotional, and it's, it's cool to think about um, the birth mom, wherever she is, and, and the feelings that she's had since um, giving her daughter up for adoption. I'm sure some, most of those feelings weren't great, but if she could listen to this now and see what it did for Alvin and his family, it just makes me smile. So one of the things that we pride ourselves in this podcast on is taking what we learned today and putting it into this concept we call actionable insights, the carpe diem moment where you say, I learned this today, so therefore I'm going to go do this differently. Is there anything that comes to top of mind for you about what you learned to do differently because of this? Yeah. I was actually having a conversation yesterday with someone about being the difference between being motivated and being inspired. And I think being motivated is is sometimes forced and, oh, I have to do this. I have to find the motivation. Being inspired is, um, I feel so inspired that I want to do this. And Alvin really inspired me to be myself. I think out of the three... um, core values that he discussed, that's the one I struggle with the most because as a human, we want everyone to like us and we want um, 
to please everyone. And that's what I really struggle with is, is being my true self um, for fear of someone may not like that. Um, so I'm really inspired to just continue to work on to be myself, um, truly who I am. Well, that's something that many people struggle with and try to reconnect with in many different pieces on the, in their journey. So good for you. Just keep practicing that. Uh, for me, it was remembering how much currency we have as leaders within our, our, sto- our personal stories. When we get executive teams together and we ask them to talk about what's going on in their lives, what what happened in their past, how did they get to where they're at today, it's always a very powerful moment in ways people connect with each other. Our stories, the good, bad, the ugly, the injustice, the triumphs, they're all part of our currency. That as good leaders, if we learn how to use that currency, we can get people to work together better and we can create better results. Yes. Thank you, Paul, for inviting me to be a part of your podcast. I'm really grateful for this opportunity. I never thought a year ago when I asked you to play golf that I would be here today after the Young Leaders Breakfast 2019, so thank you. Yes, thank you for suggesting golf. That was much better than doing coffee. So the final word that we always try to have everyone remember about this podcast is... Goodness pays. Yes, goodness pays. And from Alvin... Goodness pays. Thank you very much for investing your time in the Goodness Pays Leadership Podcast. Whether you're exercising or driving or on an airplane or waiting for an airplane, whatever, we appreciate the space that you make in your life to learn more about how goodness pays in leadership. I look forward to talking with you soon.